0: So we are in our series on the letters of John. Uh, Dustin, thank you for leading us this morning. You know, last week he pulled double duty, uh, leading worship and preaching. So I asked him if I could do it this week, and I auditioned, and he said no. So actually, that's not true. Before we even got to the audition, we were talking about, like, um, key changes and chords and stuff this morning, and I uh, made some guesses, and I was wrong about the answers to some things, but I'm learning, I'm, I'm asking questions and I'm learning. So uh, thanks for leading us this morning, Dustin. Um, so turn to 1 John chapter two, 1 John chapter two. While you're turning there, um, there's a couple things that I just kinda wanna remind you of uh, in case you're new to this series or you've missed a few weeks or just as a good refresher about how we're approaching our time together in these letters of John. And one of the things that we have noted is that John has a habit and goes through a particular pattern as he's writing. And so as we're teaching through the books and reading them together, we're following along with the pattern that he set. And so uh, as we've already laid out that there's this pattern, and Dustin has covered um, the first two portions of the first pattern and then we're going to start again through it next week. But we begin with a foundational truth or a foundational doctrine. John does as he's writing. He lays out a foundational doctrine or truth that he wants his readers to grasp, to really get a hold of, and then from there uh, he talks about how we apply that truth in our lives through obedient living. And then finally he's going to close his pattern Um, with giving some encouragement to his readers who are facing some very difficult uh, things in life. And so uh, Dustin, uh, a few weeks ago, talked about the foundational doctrine that God is light and in him there is no darkness. That was the truth that we rested on. And then we talked about how the the obedient living, the, the practical application of that truth is that those who are in God walk in the light. If God is light, then those who are in him walk in the light. And as we looked at last week, walking in the light means that we love one another. And then John is now going to transition into giving us some much-needed encouragement. And so that's where we land this morning. And so whether you have your Bible or you're following us on the Bible app, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. 12. We'll read just a couple verses to get started. And here's what John says. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So here's some questions that I think are worth asking and exploring. Uh, If you've been with us, or even if you haven't, but if you've read through uh, John's letter, at least his first letter, that's where we're at now, you'll notice that this is a very stark contrast between what he's been writing up to this point. Not in content, but in style. All of a sudden, John breaks out in, like, poetry in the middle of writing these uh, deep spiritual foundational doctrines and truths, as he's given us some practical life application of how we put those truths into work in our lives, and then he just breaks out in, like, spontaneous poetry. I don't know if that happens in your life often, Um, It doesn't in mine, unless my kids are watching High School Musical or like The Descendants. Some of you, you have kids at the right age that you even know what that is. Um, And they're watching these shows where they just like randomly break out in song. Not my favorite movies. Um, But I don't know if that happens to you. But all of a sudden, John just breaks out into spontaneous poetry. And so there's a couple of questions. Like, first of all, why? Why is he writing this letter? Does he just break out into poetry? Because that's not his normal thing. Um, we don't see it very often from John. Uh, so why does he do that? Another question is, okay, who are these children and these fathers and these young men that he calls out uh, twice each? So six times he calls out a group of people. Who, who are these little children? Who are these fathers? Uh, who are these young men? And so if I don't fit one of those categories, is he not talking to me? And then finally, what is John's point? What's the point he's trying to make with this little poetry section? And so let's just ask some of those questions and, and look at them. The first one, why the sudden change of structure? Um, well, there's a, it's a great question, and we don't actually fully know. Sometimes we ask questions like that, an author will tell us. Like if you were to ask, why did John write his gospel? He plainly tells us in his gospel why he wrote it. Um, But if you were to ask why all of a sudden the poetry John doesn't actually say. Now, sometimes there might be internal clues as to why he would do something like this or why an author would do something like this, but there aren't really any internal clues either. We can't like read between the lines and figure it out, um, which has left a lot of scholars and preachers a little confused and asking this same question, and um, it results in a lot of speculation, and so we don't really know why he breaks out into poetry. I have a speculation. Uh, it may be right, it may be wrong. I think these are John's like favorite, what we would call, preacher phrases. Okay? Uh, if you've listened to one preacher long enough, you know they have phrases they love to use. They use them over and over. It just naturally comes out. And I think these are John's preacher phrases, Because he's writing to churches that he helped to pastor at one point. And if you look at some of these phrases, you recognize how familiar they are. I mean, think about it. When he says, because you know him from the beginning. He says that twice in this little poetry section. I mean, that has John written all over it. How does he open the gospel of John? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. How does he open his first letter? Do you remember? He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we have seen and we have looked at and we have touched. I mean, this wording and this language has John written all over it. Because sometimes authors will take a poetry section and and they'll take it from something that they didn't write but others use. People in the New Testament do that. Like the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says, "...and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." that he, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality of God a, 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 a thing to be grasped. Like, that Christ him um, was not originally Paul's. That's something that was used in the first century that Paul adapted into his Philippian letter. Or when, Christ, uh, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you of first importance what I also received. Right? That Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures. Um, those, that, that was an early church mantra. But what we see here is, this has John written all over. This is his language. This is not somebody else's language. And so I think these are his favorite preacher phrases. Um, because we see him say these kinds of things over and over. And in this section of encouragement, he's relying on some things that he's just comfortable and used to teaching. And so then we ask the question, well, who is he talking to? Who are these little children, these fathers, and these young men? Well, there's kind of a couple options. One would be he's talking to a literal group of groups of people based on their life stage and their age. But I don't think that's the case for a couple reasons. I think what he's doing is he's using this as a way to talk to everyone in his churches, everyone who reads the letters, no matter where you're at, based more upon your spiritual age. And one of the things that John loves to do is he actually calls everyone little children. He does it throughout this letter. We've already seen him do it just in chapter 2 before this. He'll do it several more times in the letter. He loves to refer to everyone as children. Not in a derogatory or putting down kind of way, but that's more as he sees himself as a fatherly figure um, as he's shepherding and pastoring uh, these people. And so John, I think, is more referring to people who are maybe at different spiritual stages. But here's what's really important to note. Everything that he says to each one of these groups, he says to everybody in other places in the letter and in his gospel, which means it doesn't actually really matter what stage of spiritual life you find yourself in this morning. John is talking to you. So it's not as though when he says fathers, he's only talking to those who are older. Or when he says children, he's only talking to those who are younger in the faith. Really, the truths that he's sharing are true for everyone. And he makes that clear in the rest of his letters and in his gospel. So what is John's big point? What's his point in this poetry section? What is he trying to do? Well, there's, I think there's a key. There's a clue. Let's go back and look at at this, whether you have it in the Bible or in the Bible app. Notice the pattern. Three times he says, I am writing to you. I am writing to you, children. I am writing to you, fathers. I am writing to you, young men. And every time after he says that, he then says, because. And then he changes his language just a little. Instead of saying, I am writing to you, he says, I write to you. I write to you, children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you, young men. But then the pattern stays the same. That word, because. I'm writing to you because. And then John reminds them of some truths that they already know. It's something that they need, but it's not new information or new strategy. Sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes what we need is not new information. Sometimes what we need is not new strategies. Sometimes what we need, when we need to be encouraged, is to be reminded of what we already know. Um, In addition to pastoring, one of my loves is coaching. Now, I've coached a lot of different sports at a lot of different levels. Um, I don't love coaching Little League, but I do it because I'm a dad. Um, but I really love coaching um, at the middle and high school levels for a couple reasons. One, when you get to the higher levels and it's a little more competitive, uh, this'll sound terrible, this, you just don't, you don't have to pretend like everyone's equally awesome and good and athletic, right? When they're little league, it's like everyone's the best and then you get older and it's like, no, clearly some are better and they're gonna start um, and I just like that. Two, as a coach, but not a teacher, I can yell at kids all I want. Like I don't have the same rules that teachers do, and I can punish them with physical activity, where you can't do that if like you're a school teacher. I love coaching. Um, But I don't just love coaching because I love the sports, I love coaching because I love students. And before I was a senior pastor, before I was a co-pastor here, before I was a senior pastor at a church in Denver, I was a youth pastor, I love working with students. And uh, my favorite sport to coach is track and field, always has been. And uh, when we would come to championship weekend, um, we we were a competitive team. We won a lot of championships, individual and team. I loved it. But here's what I would do at the championship track meet. We would gather together after we finished our warmups and stretching. And you know what I would not do? I would not try to coach the students and the athletes anymore. No new strategies. Because by the time you're at the championship meet, you can't fix anything, right? I, I can't teach them something new on that day. I can't implement a new strategy. At that point, I cannot make up for deficiencies in athleticism or conditioning. You know what I do as a coach on championship track meet? I remind them of what they already know to be true. We ran a really hard program at my last school. Um, I knew all the other coaches in the district because I'd coached there for a long time, and I knew that we ran a harder program than the rest of them. We would do really hard workouts, and we'd make all our athletes do them together. Didn't matter if you were a sprinter, a long-distance runner, or you threw shot put. Uh, Our hardest one was called Harvest Hill, uh, which won't mean anything to you, but we would run as an entire team. We would jog uh, a couple miles to this hill on Harvest Street, and it was a really steep climb. And we would run sprints up and down it for over an hour, and then we would all jog back. It was brutal. Uh, kids threw up. Kids cried. It happened. Um, but they didn't know what was coming. Now, if you're a veteran on the team you on the day, so I ran it with them, and that was mostly just so that they wouldn't have an excuse Uh, to quit. But when I showed up in my running gear, the veterans on the team knew what was happening that day. But we would run, and at the end of the day, we would do maybe six or seven miles, which is not terribly far, but half of that was sprinting up a hill. It was hard. It was brutal. And I knew that no other team out there did that workout. And so on championship weekend, I would remind them they were the only team, the only athletes on that track that day that had run Harvest Hill. Because at that point, my job is to remind them that they had put in the work. It was not to teach something new. It was to remind them of what was already true. That's what they needed. They needed the confidence to know they, they had worked harder than everyone else on the track, which they had. I think this poetry is John's championship speech to his church. The things he said aren't, aren't brand new. This is not new information. What he's trying to do is he's trying to remind His people, his church, those that he loves and cares about, of what's already true. And so, in the beginning, when he says, "I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven," for his namesake, his his church knows this. But here's what John is doing: he's just looking at him and he's saying, "Hey, you're forgiven. You're forgiven." You may carry a heavy weight on your shoulders. You may feel guilty, you may feel dirty. You may feel like you've let the Lord down or people around you, but let me tell you something. You are forgiven. It's because of him and it's for him. But you are forgiven. And right now, you don't need new information, you need to be reminded of what you already know. You're forgiven. When he says, hey, you know him who was from the beginning. He's saying, listen, you know him who is here and who has seen it all. I know the world is tough. I know it feels like things are getting worse. But you know him who's seen it all. He's been here from the beginning and he hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you and he's not going to now. You know him. When he looks and says, "I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one," or at the end, where he says, "I'm writing to you because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one," he's looking at him and saying, "Listen, the enemy, He has already been beaten. He has already been defeated. I know he's attacking you. But he's already been defeated. God's word is in you. It's given you strength. And the enemy can't win now. This isn't brand new information. But some of them needed to hear it. And maybe this morning some of you needed to hear it. Listen. You're forgiven. Own it believe it live it you're forgiven hey i i know it's tough i i know it feels like the world's getting worse but you know who him who's been here from the beginning he's seen it all he's not going anywhere hey i know you're feeling attacked but the enemy's already defeated he can't win now God's word is in you and it's giving you strength. I think this is John's sort of championship speech. This is how he's encouraging his church. He's reminding them of what they already know to be true because sometimes that's what we need to hear. Let's look at the next couple verses. And I think this is how the encouragement begins to work itself out in their lives. He says this, so do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I think the question we have to ask on this section is what does it mean to love the world and the things in the world? So I'm kind of excited because uh, tomorrow I get to go pick up a new truck. I mean, it's not brand new, but it's new to me. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, so it's a three-quarter ton, uh, which some of you know what that means. Some of you, that's like, and that's OK. Um, so I drive a half-ton truck right now. So I used to have a three-quarter ton truck, uh, and it got stolen uh, from out of my driveway when I lived in Aurora. Some of you are like, well, it's because you lived in Aurora. But, um, uh, it got stolen out of my driveway and uh, it wasn't collected. They, the police didn't find it for months on end, long after I had already replaced it. And I've really missed it. And there's some certain utilities that I can do with a three quarter truck, trun- three quarter ton truck, that I can't do with my current truck. I'm really excited. Um, is that sinful? Is it sinful for me to want this truck? Is it sinful for me to be excited? about the truck? Is it sinful for me to love the truck? Is that what John's saying? You can't like things in this world. You can't even, there can be no hint that you might love something in this world. Is that what he means when he says you can't love the world or the things in the world? I think we probably have all lived enough life to know that It can be idolatrous to love things to a certain degree. You can love things to a certain degree that it becomes sinful. But does it mean you can't love or like anything in the world? Well, I think verse 16 helps us answer what John is trying to communicate. And he defines what it means for things to be of or in the world by three categories. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says, when he says the pride of life, and this will give us, I think, a little clue into what he's talking about. Um, he is not talking about your physical being, like that you exist, that your heart is being, beating, that you're breathing in oxygen. He's not talking about that kind of life. We could actually translate this instead of the pride of life. We could call it the pride of livelihood because it's really what John is talking about. Because the word he uses here in the Greek is not the same word when we talk about eternal life. When John uses that phrase eternal life, which he does in his gospel and his letters, different word for life. When he talks about Jesus being the word of life, which he does in First John chapter 1, different word. Here, the word he uses is more closely associated with livelihood. Let me give you an example in Luke 21. Jesus is going to tell a story. He's going to use the same word that John does, and I think it gives us insight. Um, Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. That word is the same word that John uses in our passage today. All of her livelihood is what Jesus says here in this passage. And so when John calls out the things of the world, it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and it's the pride of livelihood. It's the pride of of what we have or provide for ourselves. You may have noticed this connection the moment we read this passage today that I'm about to show you. Um, It may have come to your mind immediately. Or this connection that I'm about to show you might be something that you've read about before or that you've uh, seen before, that you've heard a, a preacher preach on before, but you had kind of forgotten. Or For some of you, this may be brand new. But those three categories mirror the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness And this will give us even more insight, I believe. Mark chapter 1 says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that he faced the temptations from Satan as he was beginning his public ministry. Luke tells us um, that same story. That's all Mark tells us. He doesn't tell us everything that happens in the wilderness, but Luke does. So here's Luke telling. We're just going to read a, a little bit of the beginning. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So that same event. He just came out of the Jordan River after being baptized. And is led into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Probably an understatement. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And here's what the three temptations that Satan came at Jesus with. If you're hungry, make these stones become bread. It's the desires of the flesh. Then he shows them all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give all these to you. Everything you see, I'll give it to you if you'll worship me instead. The desires of the eyes. And then he says, Jesus, throw yourself off from the temple and watch as the angels come to rescue you. Bask in your own glory for a moment. It's the pride of life. But what was at the root of all of these temptations? Do you remember what God said over Jesus when he was baptized in the Jordan? You are my beloved son. And then did you catch what Satan said immediately in the wilderness, right after the baptism when Jesus went into the wilderness? Satan begins his attack with, if. If. You are the son of God. Embedded in these temptations is a questioning of his identity. That's what Satan starts with. I know God declared these to be true. But if that were really true, as though there's a seed of doubt, if that were really true... That's what the things of this world cause us to do. The things of this world start to cause us to question who we are in Christ, who God has declared us to be. It's the things of this world that start to cause us to question what God has already said to be true over us. So what I can't do is I can't lay out a list of everything that qualifies as these are the things in the world, And these are the things that are not in the world, so you're safe over here. Because for all of you, it'll be a little different. But it's the things in your life that get you to start questioning who you are and what God has already declared true over you. What John is doing in this encouragement section, he's wrapping up the first round of this pattern where we see this foundational doctrine or truth, how that applies to our life, and then an encouragement to keep going. In this encouragement section, he wants to remind us of what's already true, about who God has declared us to be, what God has already declared to be true in our lives. And so when things are tough, when there are temptations in the world, when something in your life begins to cause you to question who you are, what God has declared to be true over you, we fall back on what God has said. On the truths that, hey, you're forgiven. You may not feel forgiven, but he has declared by the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven. It, it's tough out there. Sometimes you feel alone but you know who was from the beginning. He's been there the whole time and he's not going anywhere. Hey, I know you're being attacked, but he has already defeated the enemy. You're strong because the word of God resides in you and the enemy can not win. And that's John's encouragement for you and for me. And then he closes this little section, this last little statement. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we invest, when we invest our lives in God, it lasts forever When you're picking out your 401k options at work, you don't invest in a company that's dying. John says we're investing our lives into something that will last forever. The things of this world that distract us don't last. But we're giving our lives to something that'll last forever. With that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment that you give us this moment where we can come before you and be reminded of what you have declared to be true for us and in us and over us. Sometimes things get tough, the opposition gets difficult, and it's hard to remember, but Lord, would you remind us of who we are in you and what you have declared to be true over us. I want you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. We're going to enter into a time of response. A time for us to sing. And when we sing, what we're doing is we're declaring what God has said to be true over us. Most of the time when we sing, we're not singing and learning new truths. We're declaring what we already know to be true. And so we're going to make that declaration of who we are and what's true over us. And then we invite you to the table. And it's at the table, laid out on display, that Jesus chose us. And when we take that bread and the cup, we're declaring that we choose him. And so we invite you to make that a part of your worship response this morning. His body broken for you. His blood spilled for you. Because it's by his name and his blood that you are forgiven.